0: Yes, I know there's a spa there. Remember, I am associate pastor. Okay, I can't afford. I can't afford the spa. Uh, there is there is a pool. That's like a spa. Close your eyes. You know, get the get the get the bellhop to put a towel on you afterwards. It's all the same thing. That's good. You should hold them to a higher standard. Okay, so. Sorry, Mary. I know. I know I'm wasting your time right now. Okay, um, last week we talked about what? What did we talk about last week? Instead of me telling you, why don't you tell me? Oh, that's good. I hear the oh. Uh, last week it was um, what the ancient mothers call. I really like a thicker marker, actually. Jesus is like, I thought you said no reservations, like Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, exactly. Death and resurrection. And then we talked about Axidy, which is what the ancient mothers called it, which is the fancy way of talking about apathy. Okay, and then I gave you that whole, I gave you the you know, the psychological chart. I promise I don't have a psychology degree. But, um, you know, lots of people don't have medical degrees, but they do a lot of medical stuff. So, uh, in that psychology chart, you saw that apathy, where did it fall? Do you remember in the chart? No. Cheat sheet, thank you. Yeah, on that psychology chart, apathy was kind of down in this corner. And up here was, uh, what was that called, Jen? You have your sheet there. Flow, yeah, which is just a fancy way of talking about uh, energized focus. Um, and I think, you know, boredom was here. What was next to boredom? Yes, that's like being at the spa at the Harrington. That's exactly right. So uh, this side said what, the challenge, is that right? No, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. level, yeah. So the challenge and the skill. So things that require very low challenge, so it works like this, and very low skill make you apathetic. So, some examples. What were some examples of apathetic actions or situations? What were some examples? We had the laundry. What else? You had some other things. Cleaning the bathroom, that's good. Unless you're nesting before you give birth, then cleaning the bathroom isn't apathetic. It might be kind of fun. That was the best time of my marriage, right before she gave birth. The whole house got cleaned. It's great. What else? What are you drinking back there? Wow, big old coke in the morning. that a girl. Go on and get it. Okay. I guess so. What else? What were some other apathetic situations? That's all right. No, I was just I was just waiting for somebody to give me an apathetic situation. All it was was laundry in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. How do you spell repetitive? Repetitive. R-E-P. That's okay, R-E-P. You all know what I'm saying. <laughs> now, think about, think about this in the church. Think about this in the church, okay? Because I actually didn't think about repetitive as, as something that might lead to apathy. But think about this in the church. What are some things in the church that could make a person apathetic? Oh, yeah, boy. Talk about hopelessness. Jeez, uh, you are exactly right. <laughs> committee meetings, what else? The worst thing a church can do is have lots of committee meetings. That is like, oh, man, I don't, wanna, I don't even want to tell you what I think about them, because then you'll call the president. But I don't like committee meetings. Uh, what else? What else in the church can lead somebody to apathy? Yes? Boy, you're not, this is, this is why I love this group. You never say what I think you're going to say. Actually, there's this great book that just came out called Why Men Don't Go to Church. What would be the reason you think they give Why Men Don't Go to Church? Exactly right. Exactly right. They don't have a task to do. They, they, and they said this is a generalization, but as you know with every generalization there is some truth. They said women... Are attracted to the church because of the relationships they can build. I don't mean—I I, mean—I don't mean that negatively. I mean, they can actually build community. Men are attracted to the church when they've got something to do. You know why the building has been so successful next door? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, nothing against women. I'm not saying anything negative about women. But guys have been there day in and day out doing work, and they feel now like they belong. So the way a woman feels—generalization—like they belong is by creating a relationship like this. The way men feel like they belong is by swinging a sledgehammer, and 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 then six months later saying that wall was there and I knocked it down and somebody asked me to do it. Yeah. Exactly right, and that's the thing. You all form relationships and then you do stuff together. They do stuff together and then form relationships. So it's sort of it's a little it's a little upside down, but um. Yeah. So the, so the worst thing, you know, the worst thing you can do, and we've said this to the men's groups, you know, when they say, make this announcement because we're going to have special eggnog in football. Make this announcement. We want 50 guys out there. 50 guys aren't going to come to that. you got to actually go up and ask a guy, come play football or come work and get something done. So the worst thing we can do to guys is sort of make a general announcement and expect they're going to show up and sort of grunt and drink eggnog and all that kind of stuff. It ain't going to happen. But when you go, when you, we've made phone calls to guys and said, come swing a sledgehammer, and 30 guys will show up. They've got something to do. So interesting. They feel ignored. Good. That might be a uniquely feminine answer. Uh, But keep going. Why else? What else makes you feel apathetic? As far as the church is concerned. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. Yes, exactly. That's what I had hoped you'd say to start. Because the liturgy is very much routine. And um, what do people often say about churches where they think, well, let me say this first, and then you can give me the answer. The first thing is, the reason churches go bad is when the liturgy isn't done well. So the liturgy is not, there's nothing in the church that's sort of hocus-pocus, like if you just do it, it'll work out. So even the liturgy, sometimes people say, and these these are very solid Lutherans, say, Just do the liturgy, and you'll make disciples. Well, doing the liturgy isn't enough. You have to do the liturgy, and you have to do the liturgy well. So what would lead people in the liturgy to feel apathetic? What about it? Not done well, what else? The roteness of it? it? Yeah, and they don't feel like, what what don't they feel like actually occurs in the liturgy? New, or some, say that again? Or some connection? You feel disconnected. Yeah, you feel disconnected. And how does being disconnected happen in the liturgy? One, you feel like, you know, although I can't listen to the readings, they don't apply to me. The worst thing you can say is, that sermon didn't speak to me. Right? Oh, I'm glad he was talking about Bob, because Bob is, he's a (laughs) damn sinner. But me, I'm actually okay this week. What else? Especially with hymns, what happens with hymns? You sing 18 stanzas. As slow as possible. I'm serious. There's a rule at St. John: you don't sing more than four stanzas for the hymn of the day. Now, now some of you lifelong Lutherans will say, "Oh, come on! We should sing all seven." Or as musici- musicians say, and I love Mueller, and he actually makes a point. But as musicians say across the board, the hymns tell a story. You got to tell the story. That may be true, but if you're walking in for the first time and you sing, you know, uh, one year we sang like eleven stanzas to a hymn. You know who picked it? The vicar at that year. Uh, We sang like 10 or 11 stanzas to a hymn, and people by the end are exhausted. They can't listen anymore, and because they can't listen, yeah, and they can't sing, and they can't listen anymore, and so they feel disconnected. They miss the message of the hymn. Exactly right. So why do you think that, now think about Tazay and Gregorian chant and some of those responsive psalms that Jonathan's very good at composing. Why do those work? One, they're shorter, but two, what do you have? It's repetitive, but it's short phrases that embrace you. They're poetic. They're beautiful. They draw you in. And if you get lost in it, it's okay because you heard it once and you got it. Whereas a hymn, you really have to sing all six stanzas to figure out what it's trying to say. Really? I mean, and believe me, I, I'm a big advocate for let's sing hymns. I am. But, but there comes a point where people just can't keep up. So we've got to be cognizant of that. And I would, I would propose to you, if you look back at the history of the church, the last 20 or 30 years, You know why contemporary worship has boomed? It's not because people like drums and people like guitars, or especially kids. The reason it boomed was the liturgy was so poorly done, that was the only other alternative. Do the liturgy or do nothing. And instead of doing nothing, what do they do? They did something drastically different. And if you think about it, contemporary worship does draw people in because it gives everybody some amount of participation, which isn't always felt in the traditional liturgy, but it needs to be. What else? Okay. Now, we're going to get to the text, I promise. And we'll also get to Colossians because there's something in there. I want to ask you one more thing. What in your life leads you to be apathetic? And I know not all of you are, or maybe none of you are, but, but we all have moments. What in your life leads you to be apathetic? One, one way of thinking about it is, I don't have anything. So you sort of despair of your life. If you're you see a lot of apathy when homeless people walk in the doors, because what do they feel like? Oftentimes, if it's after the first or second day of the month, they walk in knowing they're not going to get anything, because it's all gone, and so they kind of say, "Well, what's the point?" But how else do homeless people feel? Yeah, homeless. Oh, hopeless. Yeah. Okay. Like nothing can ever change. What's the future? Which is which is apathy on steroids. Nothing can ever change. Um, but is it just, why do all of you, and none of you are you know, poor in the sense that homeless people are, what leads you to be apathetic? The same idea, nothing will change, but what is, what is it in your life that leads you to think that way? Say that again? Past experience, good. What else? Good. Good. Keep going. Good. Lack of change. OK, I'm not good enough, and I didn't do the right thing. Or whatever. Good. Yes, yeah, sometimes regret can be very powerful, because what happens, your regrets eventually consume you. All you can think about is what you didn't do, or what you should have done. Or what you did. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes people need a little more regret, right? I mean, sometimes there are people who have no regret at all. I mean, people say, no regrets. Well, that's not actually always helpful because sometimes people actually do need to reflect on their own life and say, this was good, this wasn't good, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. But, there, but sometimes people do get consumed with regret. And what's, what leads a person to get consumed with regret? Guilt, good. So you're consumed with guilt, you're consumed with regret. What leads somebody to be consumed with guilt? Yes, they've never gotten over their sins. Yeah, kind of a realization of where, what you did and have done, or not done. Exactly right. And here's, the, you actually put it very nicely, if you don't have any faith. There are lots of people with faith who struggle with the same thing, who say things like, you ever heard somebody say, I know the Lord's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Guess what that is? I mean, that's, that's idolatry. Your sin or your own self has become some stumbling block to receiving full blast forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm not in control. Good. Anything else? What's interesting is all your answers have reflected, have sort of um, presumed that apathy comes from not having something. You lack hope. You lack power. You lack control. You lack maybe forgiveness. You lack. Uh, you lack a lack of regret. You lack faith. Good. I wonder, however, if apathy can come from having too much. I've seen it all. So look at look at your article here. This is this actually came out just this week, December tenth, which was my watch is it's today. It didn't come out today. I got an email about two days ago. But uh, like every other magazine, they put a day ahead of time. It's like planes when they say, it'll take seven hours to fly from O'Hare to Boston. You're like, seven hours? Well, then they're never late, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you put a date on it December 10th, guess what? It always comes out on time. So um, can't get no satisfaction. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I want to read you two paragraphs, or actually three paragraphs, um, and then just think about this. So we've talked about we don't have certain things, and that leads us to be apathetic but i wonder if we have too much stuff you've seen it all maybe you had it all and that leads you to be apathetic and here's the key and this is what it'll say oftentimes when you have too much you can never be satisfied do you know people like this who they always want the next best thing i got to have that new car and it's not always goods i got to have that you know that relationship i got to have this i got to have this i got to have this they're like little kids and they can never be fully satisfied so listen to this article Carolyn Ahrens, I've never met a potato chip I didn't like. Actually, I've never met a potato chip that didn't call my name from behind the pantry door until I was forced to eat it and every one of its salty companions. Okay, forced, yeah, exactly. Well, but here's the, th- here's the funny thing. We all chuckle, but that's the way the world is. So when I heard the phrase carbohydrate addiction, I knew nutritionists were onto something. It turns out there are foods that can actually increase your hunger when you consume them creating an escalating recurring need for the very substances that intensify the problem you ever had this experience where you I mean people say this about like drinking diet Coke because there's no sugar you drink it and what do you do you want more of it or you want more of something with sugar so there is some there's some pattern here the reality of carb addiction is it is accepted more widely in popular culture than in scientific communities but most people can verify anecdotally that some food only makes them hungrier. Now flip it over. You can read the whole thing later. But flip it over to the second to last paragraph. 600 years after the Babylonian exile, Jesus addresses every problem Haggai describes. He, she gives you that. Crops don't grow, Jesus says. Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Food and drink don't satisfy. Jesus is the bread of life and living water. Clothes don't warm, says Haggai. The Messiah alone can cover our sins. Wages disappear. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven. The desire for fullness. Now, think about these things she uses. Fullness, wellness, wholeness, productivity. That's the opposite of apathy. Security and satisfaction. turns out to be a desire for Jesus. All substitutes, even salty, crunchy, intensify the hunger. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this is a brilliant article. We're going to run it for Christmas Eve. But you gotta, I mean, read the whole thing. But the point is, part of our struggle, part of our path to apathy, I think, and this is true for me too, is you actually have more than you need. It's not actually a lack of something. It's it's too much of something. Whatever that something may be, too much time, too much energy, you know, too many worldly goods, too many friends, too much money. So now think about that. How would that, does that change your sense of apathy at all? Or maybe how you get out of it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I I agree. And here's, yeah. This is, so what you should read in this is none of these things are bad. Because you're using what? Your full potential to encounter any challenge that may come. So even relaxation or rest in the scriptures is a, is a valued thing. But here's the interesting thing. Think about Jesus' own life. When Jesus says, I need a break, what does he do? He goes off into the mountains or off into the hills, and what does he do? He prays. Now, how many of you would think prayer is relaxation? You might. It is meditation. But oftentimes if he asks somebody, why don't you pray, they say, oh, takes, it's too much time, too much work. It really is. You ask a young, young mom, how many prayers do you say a day? Ugh, I'm lucky if I remember to say the one at breakfast. You know, come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. So part of the thing is, and Kirby's exactly right, It's it might be more, uh, it's not so much looking at the challenges and saying, okay, how can I encounter the challenges? It's looking at your own life and saying, what has Christ gifted me with? Because if he's gifted you with certain things, Even the least challenging things actually just become relaxation, which in the Gospels is a virtue. They have time away. And some of those things are prayer, meditation, going to the Eucharist. Um, So it's interesting that Jesus, to get relaxation, prays. I don't know if I would do that. If I need relaxation, I go to a different massage envy than I went to last time so I can get the $39 discount. (laughs) I don't necessarily lie. I don't lie. I just walk in and they say, is this your first time? And I say, yes, at this one, this is my first time. Probably fair. Okay, that makes sense? We have an upside-down view of all of these things, you and me both, of what it means to have energized focused, and what it means to have relaxation. We think relaxation is doing absolutely nothing, which is more like apathy than relaxation. Okay? So, now how do you get out of this? That's one way. (laughs) Take the folks off the shelf and put it where it should be. So, look at your, I handed you out right at the beginning, page 62 through 70. Um, Look at page 64. And while you do that, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter, actually, first we'll go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And then we'll flip to Colossians. Ephesians, chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I'm sorry, Ephesians 5. If you've got one of these ESVs from the down here, it's page 978. You need a Bible? Okay, got it all up here. Concordia High School. Crusaders. Crusaders? Is that who they are? Oh, who are, who's Concordia? Cadets. The cadets. That's right. Junior ROTC. That's good. <laughs> you didn't learn to shoot a gun at Concordia? Okay. I know. Scary. It's the Lutheran way. Teach kids to shoot guns and shoot them often. Okay. Ephesians 5, verse 15, and I won't go into the wives and husbands bit, because that's only going to get me into trouble. It's like the one week where I preached on a a parable from Jesus, and I said, this is the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. What I forgot was, the epistle for that day was women should keep their heads covered and their mouths shut, and someone said, that's not the most difficult passage in Scripture, the epistle reading is. So we won't get into this. But verse 15 Chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will, of, uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the most important verse there is verse 16. So verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. So what does it mean to be wise? Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now in the Greek, it actually says not make the best use of time but redeem the time. Now think about this word, time. What role does time play in apathy? What say that again? Yeah. Abundance of time. Or very little time. Right? You can become apathetic if you have an abundance of time, you're sitting around doing nothing, or very little time, and you say, gosh, I can't get anything done, so I'm not going to get anything done. Right? So what does it mean, then, to redeem the time? Think about this. Think about this now the Jesus way. If you're given the gift of time, and time is a gift because the Lord creates days and nights, what does it mean to redeem the time? That's actually what it says. It says you, Christians, redeem the time. That's good. Anybody else have a different translation? That's actually a very good one. Make the most of every opportunity you have by doing good. What else? What does yours say? Uh, anybody have the NIV? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Make the most of every opportunity by doing good. So the question is, interesting. You don't like this translation as well as that translation? No. gotcha yep read it read it to us one more time it says the most of every opportunity because the days are i see get the most out of life live life to the fullest exactly have fun good that that's actually that's actually great observation so it's one thing to make make the most of your time but that tells us nothing about being a christian what does it mean to make the most of the time, most of your time as a Christian, or as as the Greek says, to actually redeem the time? It actually means to do good. I think it says the same thing. Oh, but what does that mean? Well, I don't know. What do you think it means? What does it mean the days are evil? It's everywhere well without even knowing it probably. Do you remember? Yes, exactly. You remember last week he talked about how. Um, the desert mothers talked about, the problems with Christians are they're manning the helm of the ship, but then the seas get calm and what do they do? They go to sleep. Right? They go to sleep, meaning they don't manage the time well. So evil, here's the thing, apathy is evil. Or let me say this, it's not actually evil, it's um, being open to evil. Apathy is just to be open to evil. Why? because you feel like nothing else can fill the gaps in your life. So who can fill the gaps? Satan. So the antidote, then, to being open to evil is to get busy and, as the New Living Translation says, actually do some good. Yeah. Yeah, keep going. Keep talking. I'm thinking about it as you go. Good. So um, a couple things. Contentment doesn't mean happy, because happy is not primarily. Now take this the right way. It's not primarily a Christian virtue. It comes from certain things. You can be happy about certain things. But the goal of the Christian life is not always to be happy. It's to have joy, which is very different than happiness. But I think, would you say, um, people who are apathetic, are they ever content? No. So contentment is not here. It's probably not in boredom, because boredom, you're always looking for something to do, so you're not content. Contentment could be here, um, but I don't think you would say that you and John mm-hmm. relaxed in your contentment. John still went to work every day, as did you. In fact, you probably worked harder than you would have liked, but you were content. where's the verse in verse Somebody look it up in the back, yeah. Yeah, contentment is a very strange thing because it really only happens in this area in its purest sense. You have energized focus for a task, but you are happy and joyful over what you have and not striving for more. So for instance, the woman in the thing I gave you who says the potato chips call out for me from behind the cupboard, is she content? Not at all. So contentment is not only uh, contentment Contentment is not just, uh, I'm sorry, people who are not content don't just have a little. Oftentimes, they have too much. And you get to a point in your life where you have so much, you're never content, which is the opposite. So your kids thought of you. You should have had more, just like I did of my parents. Growing up, we lived a very contented life. But we we uh, we never went without. the the essentials, but we never had too much. I can still remember, I was about eight or nine. You know what a batting cage is. I've told you this story. You know, you go to a batting cage, they, yeah. Well, I remember for Christmas, what I got was like 30 batting cage tokens, which was like 30 bucks at the time. It was a dollar to put it in. And I remember being so upset with my mom that that's all I got, because all my friends got everything else. My mom said, your dad worked overtime, I worked overtime, and that's what we could do. And you should be happy with that. And that was where I sort of, re- I can still remember very vividly where I was sitting, what she said, and that is the mark of contentment. Not too little, not too much, but sort of your happy spot. Right? Your sweet spot, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And so I often think, I was just talking to the vicar about this yesterday. Often the problem in our area, and it's a very, people. people who live in poor areas are not content because they never have enough. People who live in areas like this are not content because they always have too much. Not everybody. I know everybody in this room doesn't have too much. I get that. But overall, the demographic of this area is people have too much and they're not content. Um, And I've often said, well, I do too. And I want to actually, I want my kids to be exposed to a life of contentment, which often means not getting everything you want. And there are things in my life I would very easily give up because actually I don't need them. I just don't need them. Um, and I would be actually more content if I didn't have them than if I have them today. And believe me, I don't have a lot. But what I do have, I'm very grateful for. And you realize quickly how little you actually need them. Being content means you have necessities. Well, you have to that there's a lot that you Exactly. Well, think about Christmas sharing. Think about the people who come. Let's talk about them for a minute. They are not. They won't be content when they walk in the door tonight. They will be content when they leave. None of them will have a 40-inch flat screen TV in their house tomorrow. But they're content. Why? A box of oatmeal, some dishwasher detergent, some laundry detergent. Think about that life. I mean, in some sense, well, not in some sense, in every sense, I want my own kids to be content by the same things. And I often talk with young people. I don't know if I don't I don't know if you know an older demographic thinks the same way, and I'd be anxious to hear what you have to say. Lots of young people call me and say, man, I know Wheaton schools are good, but I'd love for my kids to be in a different environment where it's not, you always got to have the best shoes, the best coat, the best hat, the best everything. I'd rather send my kids to an area where you didn't have that. And young people who do, will have the money to do it, don't want to do it because they don't want their kids to be exposed to that, that life where you're not content because you never have enough. My parents didn't get the new Volvo this year so I'm not happy. Or I'm 16 I should get a brand new car. You know? I mean yeah. think about that life. My mom was a son who now has no parents. Yeah. Is living yeah. in an apartment by the thing where it's like Well, it's it's funny how even how even it changes with kids. I mean I don't obviously parents say they're sort of more relaxed with multiple kids, but I can see in my own parents. I have a sister who's just still in high school. And uh, my mom I talked to my mom the other day and I said, "Oh, what's what's new with Hannah?" Well, she lost the keys to her car and her credit card. And I laughed and said, I'm not bad for her. I said, I don't remember having a credit card at that age. And I remember I had, I had a 1989 Ford Thunderbird V8 with complete rust around the bottom. We bought it for like 800 <laughs> bucks from the guy down the street. I said, jeez, I didn't. She drives a, uh, an older Grand Cherokee. I mean, it's 10 years old, 11 years old. But I said, gosh, she's got a car with a sunroof and she's got a credit card. That's not a bad life. <laughs> so, but you're right. Even with kids, it changes. Financial situations change, so on and so forth. But contentment, you're exactly right, fits kind of up in here. But I think the antidote to people who are apathetic is to get out and do some good. Think about what doing good does for you. And I don't. And I'm not talking in, in sort of works righteousness sense. Let's just get beyond that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is being a Lutheran who does some good. Um, Because remember, um, your good works don't enable the Lord's love, but the Lord's love enables your good works. So every Lutheran who's loved by Christ should be enabled to do some good. The question is, now think about what doing good does for you. How does that combat apathy? What happens when you do good? You stop thinking about yourself. That's the first thing. When you go to Christmas sharing and you see all those families walk in, you're not going to think about yourself for that. In fact, if you think about yourself, it'll be in this sense. I really have more than I need. Right? Which is a good way to think about yourself. How what else does doing good do? It actually gets you busy, so that's one thing. But think about what think about Christmas sharing. What's that going to do for people? Or what's it going to do for you? You actually might feel like you have some meaning in your life. Exactly. I mean, Christ is never apathetic. Because whatever he's whatever he's doing always has meaning, always has purpose. Look at all the things you gave me. Mundane, routine, you know, balance, balancing the check, but repetition. All the things in Christ's life never fall into that category because he's always doing something for somebody else. Never a time where Jesus says, Oh, my life is kind of boring right now. There's always a leper to be healed, a poor person to have food. I mean think about if you read in the gospels, if Jesus said, if you know, if St. Luke said, Well, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and he was having kind of a boring day. Uh, he he decided the to just, in the sea, like yeah, that. he was doing laundry in the sea, and he got, he got mad because he had to load the dishwasher. And, uh, you know, then Jesus, then he said, oh, things are kind of mundane. I guess I'll go heal somebody. No, it's like, it's, as St. Mark says, you know, um, in, in, the, in the Greek, in St. Mark, it says, you know, let's go. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. So there's always something to be doing. And if you say in your life, I'm of no value, I can do no good, I've got nothing to give, you haven't fully comprehended what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you haven't fully comprehended the fullness of what it means. And I would then point you back to this woman's article. The answer to that is being in contact with Jesus. I mean, I don't know what, what tradition this woman is from. It doesn't sound like she's sort of a sacramental person, because I would have ended by saying, and satisfaction turns out to be a desire for Jesus, who comes Eucharistically. She'd give a whole thing about food. The, uh, the logical conclusion is to say, and by the way, Jesus is your food. You know? It's not just about saying Jesus satisfies my needs. He satisfies your needs in a very tangible way. You're hungry, and he gives you food. You're lonely, and he comes inside of you. You feel like you've got no good to give, and he who is goodness himself gives himself to you once more. This, is, this makes complete sense. Yeah, but lots of people say that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. No, you're right. I know. I know. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But the answer is, being in contact with Jesus. I mean, it's not... I often wonder if people have... Um, we say a lot, the Eucharist is everything. But I wonder for how many people, they think the Eucharist kind of falls down here. It's a low challenge, and takes very little skill. I walk up the stairs, I open my mouth, and I'm done. As opposed to seeing the Eucharist as actually being in this category. The Eucharist is not meant to intensify your apathy. The Eucharist is meant to combat your apathy and give you energized focus. But I think part of the trouble is we think of the Eucharist, and I don't know why that is. I've, I've often thought about, is it because we talk too much about the Eucharist? Well, no, because Lutherans traditionally haven't done that. Maybe it's we have too little regard for the Eucharist or what it can do. If you ask sort of if you ask many Lutherans, what's the Eucharist, they would say, well, it's, it's Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's his body and his blood. They have no sense that, when Jesus gives you his body and blood, he gives you the fullness of his divine nature. He gives you the fullness of God. Whatever God himself does, you now get to do because you have all of Jesus inside of you. There's no one who has better energized focus than God. That's all he is. He is energized focus, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. So partly it's living a Eucharistic life but seeing the Eucharist as in this category, not as, okay, well, I guess we got to go to the Eucharist. It's Sunday. I mean, does that, that make sense to you? I feel like it makes sense to me, but I don't want to just go too quickly here. Make sense, Betty? Okay. I mean, I know you got a lot of sun out in Atlanta. I want to make sure you're tracking all this. i surprised you didn't come back with your hair and braids or something. I know. Well, I haven't been to Atlanta in a long time, so anything south of about, you know, St. Louis feels like Jamaica. Uh, you have any questions about all this? Because if not, we'll, we can look at some more sayings of the desert mothers. But this is all about using, we say to people, use your time well. All that means is redeem the time, as St. Paul says. Or do some good, and then you won't be open to evil. If you're busy, I mean, think about temptation. This was Pastor Bruzik's diagram from three or four weeks ago. Temptation has a lower chance or lower risk of affecting you if you're actually out doing something. Think about when temptations come to you. Sitting on the couch watching TV, you know you're watching. You're sitting in the car line picking up your kids, and you see someone else with a new car, and you say, "Oh, I'd love to have that." I mean, temptations come usually, not always, but usually when you're doing nothing, because then you're open to the presence of evil. You always have to be active, and if you're not active with the Holy Spirit inside of you, then Satan himself will come and try to be active with you. It's it's a it's a I mean it's a it's a civil war every day. It's the battle between you know, sinfulness and redemption. It's a battle between Christ and Satan, all taking place inside of you. And the question is, who's going to win every day? Some days are worse than others, and some days Satan wins. Uh, and that's when you confess, you're forgiven, you repent, and you move on. But every day, Luther says, you make the sign of the cross, you drown the old Adam. But as you know, the old Adam is a pretty damn good swimmer. Right? He is. So every day you kind of have to push him down a little harder. and And the more you're in contact with Christ, the harder his you know his you know his swimming gets <laughs> push him down okay yeah yep right yeah and that if you don't that's a great point the devil's got the rest of the world It's us he's coming after if you don't believe that read CS Lewis Screw screwtape letters any of you see it live the screw tape letters I I was very uh, we got a very nice gift from the new member class once and uh, it was tickets on the last day of the show to go see the Screw Tape Letters downtown. Uh, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a C.S. Lewis fan like some people are. I mean, C.S. Lewis is a great figure, but I, don't, I just don't get into it as much as others. But I was stunned to see the Screw Tape Letters on stage because you saw the fortitude of Satan in that, or Satan's minions, you know? All they talked about was, this guy's becoming more like Christ, we've got to work harder, we've got to work harder, we've got to work harder. That's the way it works. The harder Christ works, the harder you work, the harder Satan's going to work, and that's why death is really a, a blessed death because finally the strife is over, the battle is done, right? Yeah. And e- yeah, and evil is personified; it takes on a person. I think sometimes we think of the forces of evil like it's some dark cloud. No, evil is a person. Yeah. Exactly. And this is, why, this is why Christmas is so important. Evil first, first takes on some personification in the garden when evil comes as a snake. And then, you know, of course, if evil comes personified, then Christ has to come personified. He has to take on flesh. I mean, all this, this is, the whole Christian life is summed up in death and resurrection, but the whole Christian life is also summed up in a struggle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. Okay, look at page sixty. Let's see. I want to move you along here. Look at page 66. This is very interesting. I found this actually humorous, because I've thought this a lot of times, and I've never actually said it, because I thought, oh, I'll take some heat for that. But now, this desert mother says it, so I can blame it on her. <laughs> Look at 66, uh, quote number four there. The same Alma Theodora said, quote, A devout person happened to be insulted by someone and replied, I could say as much to you, but the commandment of God keeps my mouth shut. Again, she said this. A Christian discussing the body with a Manichaean said, Give the body discipline, and you will see that the body is for the one who made it. Okay? Give the body discipline, and you will see that the body is for the one who made it. But I'm struck by the first comment, which is, Someone, someone insulted her, and she said, I could say as much to you, but the commandment of God keeps my mouth shut. Yeah, she didn't. Okay, so they're not perfect, all right. But at least she didn't say the same, yeah. She didn't really shut her mouth. But have you ever had that feeling where someone has insulted you, or even Satan has tempted you, and you've kind of said, you know, you're ready to sort of go back at someone? And I think it's especially true of people who have, stuck with the church, and they have friends who have left, and friends have said, I can't believe you're doing that. Or as one person said, if you're at St. John, you're leading people to slaughter. Exact, exact words. Now, the natural reaction is to what? Fight back. Fight back. What does Christ say? Don't return evil for evil. Turn the other cheek. If a person asks for your, you know, for your sandals, give them your coat too. If you do this, do this. So part of part of practicing this virtue of redeeming the time you have to be thinking about everything I think do or say um, needs to be brought under the heading of redemption. So when someone comes after you or your kids come after you um, I mean even this morning Emma said on she's going to go into our room our bedroom and watch TV all morning. I said no sit with the family. No, I'm going to watch TV. She said I'm not talking to you and she walked into her bedroom. And what I wanted to do was go in and say You know, don't talk to me that way. Partly it's though, you know, she's a kid. And partly, you know, there's a time where you just keep your mouth shut and let things sort themselves out. What's that? Yeah, exactly. We do that with our kids. We do it with our spouses. But we we have trouble doing that with the church and with the world. We just don't, we're not too keen on letting things slide or we let everything slide. (laughs) There are two mistakes. So it's sort of balancing. You know how often you go back at people. It's not always best. Don't pick a fight. Um, but I found that I found that interesting, and that all plays into being open to evil, right? What's she doing over there? Oh, okay. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It's amazing how kids will say Emma will often say you're not my daddy anymore, and I'll say. Okay, you may not want to be my daughter, but I'm your daddy. It's, which is basically like you may not love me, but I love you. Now think about though when you say that to an adult, when someone says I can't st- I'm not going to talk to you, you say I still love you. How they how do they react to that? This is why Jesus says, you know, return evil with love. Because love, I mean it oh, it throws them into a tizzy. They have no idea what to do. Yes, Mary. It's 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 interesting how in the world I mean I yeah. you you have those experiences you're out at Target and the guy at the register is kind of you know jerking you around and you just say hey thanks very much or that you know where can I find this I don't know where you can find this okay thank you very much but in the church what happens somebody jerks you around and you try to jerk them back right so yeah it's well one it's not the way of Jesus and two uh, think of think of adults like children <laughs> they're just big kids yeah exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because here's the thing. If you get irritated, that person still has control. They still have control. And if they have control, that means you're out of control, and guess where you've probably landed? Yeah. You're moving on the path there. You may not be there yet, but you're moving on the path because look at all the things you gave me mundane, routine. Faith, powerless, hopeless, out of control, forgiveless, you know, not able to forgive yourself, lack of a lack of a lack of regret. All those things um, mean that something else or someone else has control. So I would propose to you, if you let someone else have control, meaning you get irritated, you're on your way to apathy, and that's not where we want to go. Look at page 69. This is just a funny one. Number nine. And then I'll give you one sort of serious one, and that'll wrap us up. Number nine. An ascetic suffered bodily irritation and was infested with a vermin. Isn't that great? <laughs> You're like, oh, I wonder what it was. Now, originally, this ascetic had been rich. So the demon said, now, and here's the thing, the demon said already they have a sense of the demonic as being personified that I think you and I have lost. Okay? I was at a house about two years ago where I did, a, I did an exorcism of the house because the mirror was talking. Guess what? That family believes evil is real. You and I don't always believe that because we don't see it or hear it. Okay, So the demon said, how can you bear to live like this, covered with vermin? But this ascetic, because of the greatness of soul, was victorious over them. Yeah. You're like, what do they do, call an exterminator? I don't know what they did. But somehow she succeeded. Now look at the next page, number 10. Another of the old aesthetics, and it's always good to have someone who's older and been around a little longer, questioned Ama Theodora saying, at the resurrection of the dead, how shall we rise? She said, as a pledge, example, and as prototype, we have him who died for us and is risen, Christ our God. And that sort of sums up, at least for this desert mother, the theme of all of this. And it doesn't just apply to the resurrection. Insofar as energized focus... Uh, relaxation, staying away from apathy, not returning evil for evil—all those sorts of things—you take as your pledge, example, and prototype the person of Christ. He is, and this is not, this is not non-Lutheran. This is not works righteousness. This is not evangelical. This is precisely what Luther was after, which was you are a little Christ. And she, and it's interesting that she brings up the resurrection. She hasn't talked about death the whole time, and all of a sudden. She brings up the resurrection. Why is that? Because that sums up everything else she said. You do what Christ does. And what he does is he redeems the time. How does he redeem the time? It's clear when he rises from the dead on the eighth day, and the eighth day is the day that has no end. That's the redemption of time. Every day is the day of the resurrection. You wake up every morning and say, today is resurrection. Today is a fresh start. Okay? you guys have any questions, thoughts, comments? Yes. Oh I didn't that was your that was those are your compadres back here. You're right. I don't think it fits yeah Yeah the point I think the point is and you actually bring up a good point, mm-hmm. yeah. there's not a list of apathetic things for some people doing laundry is great fun. For some people, it's apathetic. Leads to apathy. Some people actually like it, though. I mean, some people. Do. So there, but there are other things for you that would lead you to be apathetic, that maybe aren't on that list. Y'all okay? All right. We don't meet next week. Actually, we don't meet again until after Christmas. Um, we will send you. We'll send you a note. We may go, and I'm not sure yet, we may go a little different direction, but talking more about women and women in the Bible and women in the church and things like that. Um, so it'll be a similar topic, maybe not the same book. But uh, enjoy your Christmas. Keep coming to church. Remember, I just want to i want to say this, and you can tell all your friends. Uh, on Christmas Eve, a new schedule, we only have three services, not four. Only three, not four. The reason that happened was... Um, we have a 4 o'clock. I'll just write these down so you keep track of this. We have a 4. I'll, I'll tell you in just a second. I'll tell you. Um, let me tell you why we did it first. We used to have 4, 5.30, 7, and 10. 4 and 5.30 were always evening prayer. 7 and 10 were both Eucharists. 10 o'clock, of course, is incense, so you probably don't want to come to 10. Okay? Um, but at 5.30, it was always... Um, the Quempus carol, and looking back at our records, probably out of, let's say, 250 people that came, probably 200 of those were parents of kids in the school, many of whom weren't Lutheran to begin with, so they came here for that service singing, and it was sort of required that you brought your kid, and you dropped him off, and you stayed, so we we didn't want to have a service with only, let's say, 30 people. What we've done is, um, we've gone four, seven, and ten. Seven and ten are both the Eucharist, um, and these are sort of, if you want sort of uh, the most solemn services of the year, these will be two of them. The solemn, I mean reverential, you know, candlelight, full blast Eucharist, all that stuff. Four o'clock is actually a little bit of an experiment this year. We want to have a service, especially next door, where people can say, I've got a friend that doesn't go to church at all. I'm not going to bring him to the Eucharist, because one, it's late, and two, they can't come to the altar and they're going to be offended. But some service that will draw people in. So singing some of the good Christmas stuff, but also not a hymn sing. People don't just want to come to a hymn sing. Some readings, but not long readings. People can't listen to 15 verses seven times. So this will have the structure of a Taze service just longer. At Tazay, we read three readings. It's all candlelight. It'll be like that, but maybe seven readings. And instead of all to Zay stuff, it'll be two to Zay things and then probably four or five Christmas pieces. There will be a sermon. Yeah, there will be a sermon. That'll be the eighth reading. But the readings will be, say, two or three verses. So instead of reading, like this morning I read nine verses from Isaiah, you'll read just the part, For us a child is born, to us a son is given. And it'll really trace salvation history. It's modeled after what King's College does for um, Lessons and Carols on Christmas Eve, King College in Cambridge. So we've, we've used the model that's worked now for a couple hundred years. But it'll have a very, it'll, hopefully it'll feel warm and embracing. And this will, in some sense, be a practice run for next door so we can work the kinks out. Okay? So 4, 7, and 10, tell your friends uh, not to show up at 530 because there won't be anything going on. <laughs> we'll be here. They can come early, but there won't be a Okay? Let's pray, and we'll be on our way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.